Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, Very pleased today to have our guest, Dr. Betsy Tuttle-Newhall who's a professor of surgical immunology and transplantation. She's also the chair of the Department of Surgery at East Carolina University's Brody School of Medicine. Dr. Tuttle Newhall, thanks for joining us so much on BTK. Well, thank you so much for having me. So uh, we'd like to start off all of our episodes with you telling us a little bit about where you're from, where'd you train, and how to come to the point that you are now at East Carolina. All right, well... I'm from originally from a little teeny town in North Carolina called Madison, North Carolina. It has about 2,500 people, and it's 30 minutes from the Virginia state border. I um, went to Wake Forest University, went to medical school there when it was the Bowman Gray School of Medicine, so I'm aging myself a little bit. And then I did a preliminary internship there and completed my residency at the New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston before it merged with the Beth Israel. And I came back to North Carolina, did a critical care fellowship and a transplant fellowship at Duke. And I was on faculty when my name was on the call schedule in June. So (laughs) I stayed at Duke for about 13 and a half years. And moved to St. Louis University to take over their transplant division. And uh, while I was out there, I had the opportunity and the privilege to be the interim chair of anesthesia. And I actually enjoyed it immensely. And since the anesthesiologists didn't do anything bad to themselves, like commit harikari, I guess I did okay. And um, the job at East Carolina came open. My mother went to college here in 1939. Mother came to college here. It was East Carolina Teachers College, and she paid $40 a semester. The hospital, uh, Bynum Medical Center, is located on the acreage that my great-grandparents used to tenant farm. So I figured this was um, a destiny path, if you will. So here I am. Um, Where do you stand between the rivalry of Duke and UNC? Oh, I'm on the Duke side. Sorry. (laughs) You know, you were the first female of... Surgery, uh, female chair of surgery in the Southeast. And I had actually seen that you were also uh, at one point in the 90s, the North Carolina's only female transplant surgeon. So, um, you know, as a woman surgeon, kind of uh, what sort of obstacles did you face as you've gotten up to these leadership positions? Can you tell us more about that? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I, I had the blessing of uh, working at Duke for a um, European. So my fellowship director at Duke was Pierre Clavian, who's the chairman of surgery at Zurich. And Pierre didn't really care if you were a woman, man, dog, cat, black, white. What Pierre cared about was whether or not you could operate and take care of the patient. And he and I got along fabulously. You know, and before then, and we all have our stories of, you know, you can't do this. Um, and if you follow my Twitter feed, you know, one of the things that that is continual is I, I just actually got a call from the post-anesthesia care unit here. But the patient that I operated on this morning didn't see the surgeon. 
and I talked to the family after we got through, and I think they thought my intern was the surgeon. And of course, he was going home because he was post-call. I'm going to read it verbatim here. So, did a case this AM, spoke to family after procedure, wearing my ECU surgery jacket with the name chair of surgery. Family says they haven't talked to the surgeon. Page by PACU to speak to family. <laughs> <laughs> we all thought it was quite funny. So, How is the patient perception of women surgeons? Have you seen that change much over the last few years? I mean, you just gave a great example of something that is a challenge, um, definitely for even senior women surgeons like yourself. How do you even see it with even junior or new new surgery residents? Careful with that senior thing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I meant it as in uh, I meant it as in a, uh, a yeah experience. That's what I meant. <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you this: having been in the Northeast and the Midwest and the South, that one that there's a significant geographic um, component to this, and then secondly, that there is um, it's gotten better in New England and in the in the Midwest. In the South, we have a lot of challenges because there are not there are not a lot of women surgeons out, at least in the rural parts of the South, at least where I am. Um, the majority of the surgeons are men. We also don't have a very diverse surgical population here in terms of surgery providers. Um, they look, you know, classically like they have for the last 50 years. So um, I think things overall have gotten better, but it, 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 it geographically there's still some challenges. Uh, I would like to now start off our uh, next segment, uh, dissection of the day. And what we would like to talk about today is transplant surgery for the general surgeon. And I think the very first question that I'd like to ask you is that as a general surgery uh, resident trainee, um, we do, uh, you know, just maybe one or two uh, month-long rotations on transplant surgery and what should be our big takeaways from um, those rotations that we have as a general surgery resident? I think the most important thing that I try to teach our residents is that immunosuppressed patients are not the same as immunocompetent patients. And so when you tell me, for example, that the diverticulitis meets this criteria from this patient, that doesn't apply to the immunosuppressed. And so you always have to have a higher index of suspicion of things um, not working out with non-operative therapy or sort of conservative therapy. The other issue I, I point out is the fact that immunosuppressed patients, when you take care of them for general surgery issues, you have to consider the fact that the medications they're on have significant impacts on their ability to heal and to tolerate whatever you're doing to them. So, for example, if you're doing a hernia repair, on somebody on serolimus. If it's an elective procedure, they should come off the serolimus before you, uh, before you operate on them. That's the perfect lead into um, one of our questions that we had is, you know, managing these patients who are on immunosuppression can be tricky. And, you know, with the medications, part of studying for the abside is memory, memorizing, you know, the mechanism of action. Um, but we were wondering, like, the more practical utility, like, what, um, when do you use the steroids? When do you use the thymoglobulin? Um, you know, can you kind of give us a brief overview of these immunosuppressive medications so that we have a better understanding? Sure. Um, so thymoglobulin is an induction therapy that people get at the time of antigen presentation 
which means reperfusion or for steroid resistant rejection. Um, steroids are the backbone and the platform of immunosuppression um, that people use. Um, so they're um, generally used amongst lots of populations and, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, most traditional programs, depending on the organ, and I can't speak to the thoracic organs because I don't do that, but um, kidney and liver, pancreas, uh, they usually base their immunosuppression off some sort of calcineurin inhibitor. And these days, it's tacrolimus in whatever form, either extended form or, or oral form as normal. One thing I will point out is that um, prednisone, steroids, um, you, you're, not, you're not obligated to use stress-dose steroids when you operate on people, only if they exhibit that. So if you're doing an elective procedure on somebody who has chronic steroid therapy, you're not obligated to give them a stress dose. In fact, most transplant surgeons don't do that because there's no evidence in our population that they've taken their daily dose that you need to do that. And if you're wrong, you give them 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone in the OR and it actually takes care of things. So, What makes thymoglobulin the most potent? Well, it's interesting that you bring up liver, right? So only eight, only 20% of centers in the country, at least the last time that I looked at the data, were induction centers. And so they would give upfront immunotherapy, upfront um, intravenous therapy or induction therapy, we, we, we call it at the time of the operation. So um, it, is an, it is a polyclonal antibody to T cells. And so it interferes with antigen presentation. And so that's why people like it. Uh, it's incredibly effective uh, for prevention of the first rejection episode. In liver patients, people use thymo, especially in hep C patients, to prevent early onset of rejection because we know that if you, at least in the before the, the times that you could actually actively treat hep C, that um, you didn't want them to have a first episode of rejection early on that you had to use steroids because that increased the incidence of recurrence of their hepatitis. But now you know, the traditional things are sort of fallen to the wayside because we're trying to figure out when we're supposed to treat people with um, the new drug regimens for hep C, which are incredibly powerful and work. Yeah, there was a, you know, remembering my time on the transplant rotation, I guess I have a different question getting away from drugs here, but there was always talk about how transplant surgery has changed significantly in the past, you know, three or four decades here. And especially with, you know, kidney transplants specifically, now we have these options for, you know, suspended time where you can keep the kidney healthy until you're ready to transplant it. Uh, and there's some options, I believe, that are coming available for livers now where you don't have to do these within uh, eight hours or so. I think I thought was, that was a cutoff, I believe. You have to correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, it's 12, what, what, but that's okay. 12. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, um, and uh, what, what have things are coming in that, in that world? What things are new? Well, I think the pulsatile, actually, it's, it's, um, it's like fashion. If you keep it around long enough, it always comes back, right? So if you, um, if you look at the history of kidney transplant, the perfusion circuit has always sort of been around since, since the inception. And so, um, we're sort of coming back to our roots, as it were. So the pulsatile perfusion circuit for the kidney allows you to, you know, sort of recover the organ from the consequences of ischemia reperfusion, or at least the consequences of brain death, 
that's probably a better way to say it. So, you know, there's significant immunological perturbations when the donor dies and, you know, which impacts what happens when you reperfuse the organ in the recipient. And so you can mitigate some of those by putting them on a cold perfusion circuit. Um, and if you look at the data, there was a big study that was in Europe. They actually do a lot better, independent of what their kidney donor profile index is, but they didn't use those metrics back then. Um, you know, for the liver, they're trying to come up with a pulsatile circuit that will preserve the organ, but, you know, we'll see, actually. One of the things in transplant that oh, stymies, I think, innovative therapies is the fact that we have to maintain a significant outcome level for the right. government to keep our doors mm-hmm. open. Uh-huh. And so if if you do something that doesn't work and you're a moderate to small program, you know, one death means a lot. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes and I, people are limited in what they want to do because of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that would be interesting. Even with the you know kidney specifically, you've seen the world change. I'm sure from when you trained as a you know a, a transplant fellow to your transplant fellows you're training now, where they you know you're doing these kidneys in the middle of the night. And now they're you know waiting till the next mornings, and um, hey, I think that well, I think probably I, changes the lifestyle a little bit too. I imagine so. A little bit, but I'll tell you the most profound thing I think that has happened in the kidney allocation system is that we've developed a. Um, we develop a system which takes into consideration um, equality and fairness. Back, back when I was a transplant fellow, kidney transplants were allocated in some ways like concert tickets. Whoever showed up first got the kidney. And good kidneys went to older patients. and All kidneys were treated equally and all recipients were treated equally. They, if they showed up first, they got in line first. They got better seats. And so what has happened with the kidney donor profile index and some of the allocation changes over the last several years, you know, good kidneys, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, (laughs) kidneys who have a higher incidence of um, surviving longer periods of time are going to patients who also have um, those characteristics. And kidneys who improve quality of life and improve quantity of life but may or may not last 10, 20 years. Go to patients who themselves may not last 10 or 20 years, but still can have the benefit of a kidney transplant. And if you ask me, independent of the perfusion, independent of the drug, I would I would argue that the allocation changes and are the things that have profoundly improved kidney transplantation for the population as a whole. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, the, the one last question before we kind of move on down our dissection that you know, I wanted to ask you is that, you know, when I was on my, my transplant rotations, you know, I'd find out from the fellow that we have a, you know, a kidney the next day or something like that. But I don't see the whole, you know, when there, especially when you're on call for transplant and you take that phone call saying, hey, we have one available. What goes into that thought process? What what things are you checking the box off? I know that's kind of a long process. Is, is there any way you can kind of shorten it to um, the basics of what you're looking at for each patient? Sure. So the basics are these. Um, CMS and UNOS have, you know, we are the prescriptive service, as it were. And so patients are required to sign a consent to say, I will take a kidney that has a higher KDPI, um, and I will take a kidney that is high risk. Um, and that means high risk for HIV. And so, you know, the opioid epidemic has sort of put us in a wee bit of a conundrum because we have 
18, 20-year-old kidneys whose KDPIs are low, which means they have a high propensity to survive, but they're high risk because they died of intravenous heroin or they died of, you know, they were having sex for money and those sorts of things. And so you sort of have to do a better job of matching uh, the patient to the to the organ based on what the patient themselves have selected. So there's a, there's a lot of patient input into it, if that makes sense. You never want to take an organ from a donor that's worse than the organ that's in the recipient already. So <laughs> how's that? <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, did you have a follow-up there? Yeah. So along those same lines, um, you know, I actually experienced where uh, we went for a um, procurement and decided that um, we probably didn't want to use that organ for that specific uh, recipient that it was uh, planned. And um, so we rejected it. But then we stayed there for actually like a couple of hours kind of waiting to see um, the other regional um, uh, transplant centers, whether they would accept it or not. Um, before it kind of circled back. And so I just was a little bit confused by that whole process of when someone says no, you know, what happens? What's, what are the next steps that happen with those, with that, uh, donor, um, before it just completely is not used? So, well, if you're in the, so before you go to the operating room, uh, most organ procurement organizations will align backups. So that if they recover, for example, we were talking about kidneys. So if they recover kidneys, then if the kidney biopsy is bad or the pump numbers are not what the center wants to accept or um, there was something that was found and some centers are more aggressive than others based on their own performance outcomes, right? So if um, if the first center says no for their recipient, then potentially you can have uh, two, three, and four. Now, when you've gone to the operating room um, and you look at the liver, for example, and they say, well, this isn't going to work for our person, you know, they need, they then need to run, the OPO then needs to run their backup. So depending on the organ, it, it, uh, depending on the organ, it, you know, it depends on how they've run the backup lists, whether it's local, regional, or national. Um, and sometimes the organ procurement organization will say, okay, we can't find anybody that is willing to accept the risk of this organ. And the organ is recovered from the donor and they put it in the box and hope they can place it. Or what happens is they'll recover it from research. So that, you know, it's sort of multifactorial. Does that make sense? Yes, that that that, that makes sense. Um, I kind of wanted to take you from the organ procurement to, like, the management of these patients. Um, and talk about how you use prograph and how do you adjust mm-hmm. the dosing program uh, prograph based on FK levels sure. and kind of if you can give us your insight um, yeah. uh, into this process. Well, I don't know if there's any insight. Each each transplant program has their own practice pattern. So you know, and if you look at everybody's outcomes on the scientific registry for transplant recipients, which has been around for a very very long time. If you look at everybody's outcome data, we're we're pretty reasonably within standard deviations of each other, which means that nobody has it right. If somebody had the magic formula, then um, somebody would be much better than the rest of us. So tacrolimus is a calcineurin inhibitor. Um, the experimental drug name was FK506. And um, 
for a long time, Astellas was the only company that would make it. Now there's, there's, um, um, generic program now, and there's also extended release program now. And so depending on your patient, depending on your program practice, uh, most people in the, um, kidney world will set the tacrolimus levels early on, early after the reperfusion to 8 to 10. Um, most liver programs will run at about 8 to 10, depending on, um, the recipient characteristics, um, maybe a little lower, depending on how their kidney function is. And then as the patient gets further out from transplant three to six months, you can ramp those levels down a little bit, depending on your patient characteristics, if you want to. You have to be really, really careful with your tacrolimus levels and, and medications that will arbitrarily bump those levels, most commonly being fluconazole or the azole will will bump up your TAC levels. And if you're not careful when you give somebody a dose of medication, they'll uh, abnormally have a high, uh, have a high tacrolimus level and potentially nephrotoxicity or neurotoxicity. Toxicity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do have a follow up for you. Uh, can you give us like okay. rundown on uh, like at your institution, uh, what kind of multidisciplinary um, team rounds do you do for transplant surgery, and what do you think is the uh, what has proven to be uh, the best regimen for you in your years of experience of taking care of these uh, very, very complicated medically and surgical, uh, surgically uh, patients. So from the multidisciplinary round standpoint, the, the, the basic level is at least, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you look at the CMS um, conditions of participation, is at least twice a week that you want to have some sort of multidisciplinary conference to make sure that the patients are you know, ready for discharge and they've gotten their medicines and they've been educated and they're ready to go and the whole team knows what's going on with them. Um, we round every morning with our nephrologists at 7 a.m. We do not have a liver program at East Carolina yet. Um, so right now, our pattern has been to, to uh, round with our nephrologists every morning at 7. Um, however, having said that, the patients are on the transplant service, which is a surgically-based program. And I always tell people there's only one driver on the bus, and that's the transplant surgeon. So the surgeon of the week is the person who determines what the course of therapy will be. That way there's no um, meddling, I call it, or off-roading, where people come in and go, oh, well, I think I need to get somebody this Lasix, for example. Um, Everything's run through the same attending to make sure that the patient has a consistent care plan for the week that that attending's on, and we always sign off to each other. And we, you know, we're transplant surgeons, so we actually talk to each other all the time. Um, so I, I think that answers the question about the multidisciplinary approach. When I was a resident, um, the transplant surgeons were incredibly active in the intensive care unit. Um, you know, you, there were no closed units. It was the it was the transplant surgeon who took care of their own patients. And so one of the reasons I did a critical care fellowship was because I felt like I needed that kind of expertise to take care of those patients because I saw some of my attendings, my transplant attendings at the Deaconess do a great job and some of them not so much. So, you know, I think that you have to participate with your intensive care unit team. But again, there has to be only one bus driver. Um Who's making all the, who's calling all the shots, who's making all the decisions. And if you can do that in a collaborative fashion with your intensive care unit team, it's the absolute best thing for the patient. Um, 
There are some transplant centers that have transplant intensive care units that are run by transplant intensivists. Um, so they're different models. Collaboration is always better for your patient, if that makes sense. But there has to be somebody who who makes the ultimate decision. And, and in today's world of, of uh, co-management and things like that, sometimes, especially with complicated patients, um, things can get out of hand pretty quickly because there's nobody in charge, if that makes sense. Kind of regarding the post-op and outcome sort of thing, um, when we talk about living donor transplant versus cadaver, there's obviously one major difference is now you have two patients, you have the donor, and then you have the recipient. Um, but what other kind of differences are there in how um, the recipients recover um, and what their long-term outcomes are? So living donors, independent of if we're talking specifically about kidneys, living donors are always better organs independent of what the compatibility matching is as opposed to brain-dead donors. Brain-dead donors or, or traditional donors, the cadaveric donors, um, go through the process of brain death, which again is an immunomodulating experience. Living donors don't go through that process. Um, you know, they're healthy, the kidney is clamped and out it goes. The cold time's short. They're usually um, very good organs from the standpoint of, um, you know, not having any pre-existing conditions because they've cleared the living donor um, process. So living donors always do better. Median survival of a living donor kidney is about 18 to 20 years. The cadaveric is 18 to 10. So be nice to your family if you have proclivity to <laughs> get into renal failure. Yeah. Um, and recipients have a tendency, you know, living donor kidneys perform right off the bat, right? So you come into the recovery room and you're making lots of urine, so living donor kidney recipients go home a lot faster and the risk of having to have dialysis post-op is a lot less. They do better. The next question I have is, um, talking about the, you know, in general surgery specifically, I know I've seen a lot of programs actually get away from their transplant rotation or just limit to either a cardiac rotation or a liver transplant rotation. Do you, do you feel, I mean, uh, personally, I had, I got a lot out of my transplant rotation, especially for management of, you know, renal anatomy and liver anatomy specifically. Do you believe these rotations, you know, I know residents aren't doing a lot sometimes, but should remain a core rotation in general surgery? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, um, as the vascular surgery practices become more and more endovascular, at least where I am currently, the vascular surgeons want their fellows to rotate with us because other than the cardiac surgeons, we are the last open vascular cases that occur yeah. routinely. Yeah. Um, and I think that it is not a core of the American um, uh, Board of Surgery. You don't have to do transplant, just like you don't have to do um, cardiac surgery to sit for your board. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. I think, again, like I said, I think the vascular surgeons are going to push us to come back around because you don't want a vascular fellow who's never done a vascular anastomosis before. Yeah. yeah. Um, how much general, how much time does the your general surgery resident spend with the transplant rotation at your hospital? They do um, two months as a two and two months as a three. And since I'm the chairman, if I need some help in the middle of the night, they do. They they come when I call them. <laughs> uh, yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> How's that? Yeah, that, that's good. So, I guess uh, another I guess uh, a follow up question, you know, is talking about volume for you know transplant surgeons as well. Do you feel like there's going to be, um, especially with the new hepatitis C vaccines, um, a yeah. decrease in the number of uh, especially livers that we're going to see down the line here? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. There's no question that's going to happen. And the problem with liver allocation, the problem with the liver transplant is going to be the, the, the epidemic that we have currently is NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Right. And those patients, as you might imagine, are obese, diabetic, cardiac disease, renal disease, hypertension. And they're not necessarily the best patients for the liver transplant in terms of their one-year survival. The programs are going to do people that are socially... Um, on the edge or socially marginal. And by that I mean in terms of family support, recidivism from alcohol, um, you know, they're going to do those kind of patients to maintain their volumes in the short run if the hep C epidemic gets better. Because the NASH patients are not actually transplantable for lots of different reasons. It's going to be interesting to see that the liver volumes are going to decline. Yeah. Like kidney volumes, on the other hand, I think are going to increase dramatically. Right. Yeah. At least the need for the kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, the last thing there, too, is that, you know, you already kind of answered my next question. Do you think they'll, you know, liberalize their selection criteria a little bit? So, you know, you will take these patients who have less of a time off of alcohol and maybe they don't have the social yeah. support. And I always thought those liver tumor board, or liver boards were very interesting to sit on and, and kind of go through the process of deciding who gets a liver, who doesn't. So, um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes next few 10 years here, I guess. So. One of the things that I had asked to do and one of the things that I did in St. Louis and one of the things I did at Duke when I was uh, on the transplant service at Duke was to ask for donor family members to come in, especially if we had a difficult ethical decision about uh, whether or not somebody was a candidate. Because I think that when you make those kind of decisions, you need to you need to understand where those organs come from. It's not like you go to a box and you pull it off the shelf. These are parts of people's loved ones who have made an altruistic gift. And I understand that hepatologists and nephrologists are their patients' advocates. But until you have the until you've actually interacted with the donor family, which I have extensively, you don't really understand the dynamics of the resource that you're trying to decide to allocate. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And there are some donor families who feel very strongly that you know everybody needs a second chance and everybody needs a second opportunity. And there are some donor families who feel that. You know, their loved ones' parts should go to people who are actually going to do something really good with them. And too often, I think some of those selection conferences exclude the donor family voice, not because they're not physically present, but because nobody really thinks about that. You know, there are three patients. Anytime you make a decision about an organ transplant, there are three patients. There's the, there's the donor and the donor family, which is one. There's the recipient that you do, which is two. And then there's the recipient that you didn't do, which is three. Mm-hmm. And in some organ procurement areas, in some donor service areas, you know, when you make a decision to transplant somebody, that means that somebody else on the list is going to die. Yeah. Especially in the liver business. So, you know, I I, I have significant issue with um, 
doing people that aren't going to do well long term. And one year's not long enough, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and so, you know, there's, I feel like there's a lot of areas with transplant that still remain kind of controversial, highly debated, and moving along those similar lines, there's always a question out there about, are there going to be jobs for our aspiring transplant surgeons? Is that something (laughs) that, like, right now at this time point, is that something that we should worry about if we're considering transplant as a career? Um, Right now, the transplant surgeon job market is pretty tight. Um, There are a lot more people, like, you know, things ebb and flow as time goes on, and there's a and there's a generation of us that are eventually going to retire and stop working. But right now, the, the job market's pretty saturated. I will tell you that for people who do academic transplant, people who do research, people who, um, you know, dedicate a part of their life to that, you know, there are jobs for those people. But if you're just finishing and um, you don't have any sort of academic credibility or you've not done anything like that, then the job market's pretty tight. And along those lines, since you work in a place where you're covering a very rural population in North Carolina, like, do you, I know we're talking about moving to more centralized, like, specialty centers, um, and especially with transplant, having good outcomes, like you said, is really important to maintain the certification, but um, do you see a role in the future for expanding, um, having more, like, transplants done in more smaller communities and getting more transplant surgeons out there? Well, it depends on it depends on what happens with healthcare as a whole, right? So if you look at it, we published a paper, the Outcomes Research Group at St. Louis University, uh, and I published a paper several years ago about you know disparities in access to transplant and the fact that poor people don't travel. And so, if you are going to offer transplant as an option, kidney being the perfect example, right? Because Medicare pays for kidney transplants, Medicare pays for dialysis. Renal failure under under Medicare is a disability. So if you're going to offer people transplants who are poor, you're going to have to put access to those services near them. Does that mean that every community hospital needs a kidney transplant program? No. But it means that you have to, you know, transplant programs are one of those things that have popped up organically. No one sort of sat down and strategically planned out and said, you know, we need one here and one there and one here. They sort of popped up in dense population areas. Or like us, we, we popped up down here because 40 years ago there wasn't anybody here and the patients couldn't get to Duke or Chapel Hill. So there may be more opportunities for that, but it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be with the liver transplant. It's going to be with the kidney and access and sort of more holistic care of the patient with renal failure. To wrap this segment up, uh, Dr. Tuttle, um, my very last question for you is could you kind of give us your two cents on uh, women um, aspiring general surgery residents who want to go into this field of transplant surgery and uh, kind of it sounds like this this uh, this field is hard enough you know with emotionally taxing like you said you just don't have one uh, one patient you have three patients the choices that you make in the middle of the night the operations that you do um, in the early morning um, hours, um, how is 
how do you think this path changes for some uh, women in surgery? And what, what what's your advice to your general surgery residents who want to pursue this career? Well, what I tell people is to do what serves them. You know, do what you love to do. And if transplant is what you love to do and you're okay working in the middle of the night, which I was, uh, because I actually loved it very much. Uh, and I still do. I still do. Um, but the duties of chair are the duties of chair. But, um, you know, you have to be willing to, to have that as your, as your passion. And if it's not your passion, don't do it because somebody thinks that's what you ought to do. And if you, if it is your passion and you love what you do, it will be very easy for you. And so that's what I tell them. And to pick a good fellowship. <laughs> Make sure they go to a good place. But there are lots of really fabulous women in transplant surgery. Uh, Liz Pomfret, Maria Milan, Kim Oltoff. Um, you know, there's some really great role models out there who have done amazing things. So, you know, I just tell people to do what they love, women and men. You don't want to be in a specialty or some sort of job that, that doesn't serve you. It's hard enough, right? Okay. Uh, that was a great uh, uh, dissection of the day there. But, Dr. Uh, Tuttle, we want to move into the next part of our, our talk here, which is our tips and tricks. Um, and, you know, there's something we haven't spoke about much on the podcast is um, managing a child C cirrhotic with an umbilical hernia and large volume of cites, <laughs> uh, which I, is, you know, every time I've only managed a couple of these in my, my time as a resident, but every single one is always quite challenging. Um, how do you go about approaching a patient like this? And, you know, especially when the patient is, you know, has an umbilical hernia, maybe it's incarcerated, maybe it's strangulated. Uh, if you're seeing this patient in the emergency room and you're taking care of them, how do you approach them? So first things first, um, the first the first question is, do you have a hepatologist? Um, secondly, you know, what's the cause of your liver disease? Uh, if you have alcohol, are you still drinking? Um, if you have hep C, have you been treated or not been treated? Are you listed for a liver transplant or are you not listed for a liver transplant? If it's incarcerated or strangulated, it mandates that you have to go to the operating room. There's no question about it. And the 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 trick is to determine the whether or not the patient will tolerate the procedure or not. And if you're forced into a situation where you have to operate on them, how you're going to manage the ascites after surgery. So, for example, if you have a patient who comes in and they've got a strangulated piece, of, a knuckle of bowel up there, and um, they're they're actively drinking, they're not a candidate for liver transplant, and the MELD score the model for end-stage liver disease score is less than 15, you potentially uh, can manage them post-op if they've not been treated, if they're, if they're treatment naive, you can potentially treat them post-op uh, with diuretics and or a TIPS. Now, if they're an acidic, I, what I will do is we'll leave a drain in them, which is heresy to some, because it allows me to give that opportunity, that give give the the umbilical hernia repair an opportunity to seal, uh, and some of them will do it quicker than others. These candidates, these patients are not candidates for minimally invasive hernia repairs because of the porousness of the mesh, and it really doesn't take care of anything. And if you run into one of those re cannulized umbilical veins, it, 
um, it makes things very exciting <laughs> in the opera. <laughs> portal opportunity. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But if they're if they're treatment if they're not treatment naive, if they are patients who uh, are listed for a liver, or they're patients who have been on diuretic therapy, um, then you can uh, fix the hernia and tips them. If they decompensate, then you can send them to their liver center. The challenge comes is when you have a patient who has a meld of greater than 15 who shows up and pushes you to operate on them. Because what do you do about them? Tips is risky. If they're not liver transplant candidates, you know, you potentially are going to kill these people. And so it's, it's about a conversation up front with the family to risk mitigate these patients and say, look, you know, I have this patient. He's pushing us to the OR because he's leaking ascites, which is very common, or he's got a piece of bowel in there, or he's strangulated. We've got to go to the operating room. He's got a pretty reasonable chance of being dead or going into renal failure. He's not a kidney, he's not a liver transplant patient because of whatever. Heart's bad, still drinking, um, no insurance, no social support, whatever the reasons are. And you say, have that conversation up front. And you say, this, we have to go, but these are the things that I need to, to let you know about. And you, you document that very carefully in the chart. Some of these patients you can't save, and it sounds kind of silly that they're going to die from a, an umbilical hernia repair, but it's not the umbilical hernia, it's the liver failure. So you have to assess the degree of their liver failure. That That is the greatest determination of whether or not they will do well or not. So you talked about, um, like, incarcerated, strangulated, you have to go to the uh, OR, and I think mm-hmm. the... Um, not too long ago, the principle was for asymptomatic that you treat the liver disease and you um, don't repair that hernia. Um, that's but correct. recently that's changed. Is that correct? Like, how do you manage them now? If their meld is less than 15, then you can fix them electively if the hernia is growing. If the meld is greater than 15, and the reason I use 15, there's some, there's, there's a, there's a paper out of St. Louis University, Alex. Bethler was the first author about predictability from elective cases. If your meld makes you eligible for a liver transplant, which is 15 or greater, then you, you probably should not be in the OR doing something elective. If you have uncontrolled ascites, your liver, it, your, your hernia repair will always fail. So you have to control the ascites. You have to manage liver disease. But if you, um, it, you, you can fix them. Mesh is sort of a non-starter. Um, I fix them primarily. Some people put mesh in. The data for this is very limited. Um, but, you know, if you fix them and you don't control the SITs, they will always come back. All right. Those were some really, uh, really nice tips, uh, Dr. Tuttle. We will now move on to our final segment. We call this the final five. Uh, these are very easy, uh, rapid-fire questions for our listeners <laughs> kind of get to know you a little more personally. So um, I'll start off with the first one. Um, what's on your iPod or what kind of music do you prefer to listen in the operating room? Oh, good Lord. I've got 3,000 songs on my in my iTunes library. I have whatever you want to listen to. Um, you know, I, it, I always ask the patients what they want to listen to. I'm not a big fan of country, but I can get through it if I have to. 
Um, <laughs> my residents are horrified that I can sing along with Little Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that. <laughs> they just sort of stare at me and say, "Did you just?" Yes, I did. <laughs> Well, I guess our, I like it. Right, our second question is, um, do you have a favorite movie or genre that you prefer? Um, you know, my historically my favorite movie has been Moonstruck, although at this point Suicide Squad is kind of coming in the top tier. And um, anything by Mel Brooks. Yeah, Mel Brooks. I would put, I would put Moonstruck, Mel, anything by Mel Brooks, and then The Marvel. Yeah, Marvel ones are good. So, So, uh, our next question is a little bit tougher, but um, is there someone outside of medicine who has had an influence in your career? Oh, sure, Maya Angelou. She was—I was the first class of students that she had when she came to teach at Wake Forest. Oh, that's great. And she. I don't know if you if you've ever physically seen her. She's about six two. She was about six two, and she liked a lot of lemon verbena, so she would really wear a lot of lemon perfume, and it was kind of a wee bit overwhelming. So here's this large woman who smelled like a big lemon, uh, <laughs> but she was very intense and very precise and very articulate. And she gave a lecture one day um, about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and I went to public school here in the South. And I had no idea who Malcolm X was. I had no, we, we had no training or no education about the civil rights movement in North Carolina when I was in public school. And so I went up to her after class and I said, I'm really sorry, Professor Angelo. I don't know who Malcolm X is. And she looked at me and she said, Miss Tuttle, in my office. And I went, oh crap, I'm in trouble now. I read everything. She had been Malcolm X's secretary right before he got shot. I read everything that she had. I read every book about him. I wrote a 50-page paper. You can ask me today. And I suspect I'm the only chairman of surgery in the country that has the autobiography of Malcolm X on their shelf. (laughs) 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 Professor Angelo taught me how to see the world in a different way. So, And I I will always be grateful to her. All right. Our next question for you would be... um what would you be doing if not uh, for medicine? Um, if I were not a doctor, what would I be doing? Holistic medicine? I'd be an Ayurvedic doctor. How about that? <laughs> that's a new, that but fit? I like so, that. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time we heard that one. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, last, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can do that too. Um the last question we have uh, right now, what would we find in or on your white coat? And we know you're already wearing this today, so you have to give us the answer. Oh, yeah. No, it's not a white coat. I I got us gang jackets, essentially. So we designed little black North Face jackets that had oh, the pirate, okay. um, the ECU pirate surgery emblem on it. And then on the over the, over the left pocket is... Um, your name and, you know, Department of Surgery. But mine says, you know, Betsy Tuttle Newhall, chairman. Dr. Pori's, Walter Pori's the founding chairman uh, here, his says Walter Pori's icon. (laughs) 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 Is there anything you keep inside that jacket on a daily basis? 
uh, my cell phone, a pen, my car keys, lip balm. <laughs> That's yeah, a decent amount, yeah. <laughs> that was really great, Dr. Tuttle Newhall. Thank you so much for joining us today. And, um, you know, we mentioned at the beginning that you, you tweet. And so um, do you want to tell your Twitter handle for any of our uh, followers who want to, our listeners who want to connect with you? Sure. It's at Newhall Betsy. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us today. No, thank you so much. I'm honored and privileged that you asked me. Until next time, dominate the day. 